You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. How would you like a little good news on today's show? Goodness knows we get plenty of bad news these days, and it's not surprising. We are navigating through a very unusual situation right now. And the unknown is generating a lot of fear and creating a lot of questions about when we'll bounce back economically and how the COVID-19 bug will change the way we do business in the future and lead our personal lives. And as real estate investors, we have to be prepared for changes in the housing industry and the lives of our tenants. So we need to ask these tough questions like, will the economy ever recover? And will the housing market hold up or crash? And will jobs ever come back? And what about Airbnb? I'm Kathy Vetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. There are a lot of moving parts to all of this, but our guest today joins me with years of experience in real estate and business strategies. Rick Sharga is the founder of consulting firm CJ Patrick. He's also had high-profile positions at Auction.com, RealtyTrack, 10X, and Carrington Mortgage Holdings, and is frequently quoted by major media outlets. Today, he'll share some valuable insights on how this pandemic might play out. And the good news is, it's not bad news. So Rick, welcome back to The Real Wealth Show. Uh, Glad to be here. It's been a while. Yeah, definitely. You've, uh, let's see, the last time I think, I didn't get to see you, but I was in New York and we were on, I think it was a Bloomberg show together. Was that what it was? I believe it was Bloomberg Radio. Yes, it was. Yeah, and you... You had access to way more data than me, and I was extremely intimidated at the time. <laughs> and look at you now. You're a famous internet personality. Oh, well, I don't know about that. but uh, So it's interesting. I just finished a webinar called Some Good News on Real Estate, and I thought there's got to be some good news, and you wouldn't believe how much I found. And then I talked to you, and you said you just did a talk on that. So tell me what you found that is going to enlighten our audience. Well, you know, I'm kind of boring, so I've always been a history buff. And and one of the first things I did was start digging into data that would tell me how the real estate market performed during prior pandemics, recessions, and economic shocks. And I poured through about the last 20 years of home sales data from First American Data Tree. Uh, and what I found was that if you look back at the last two pandemics, we had the SARS pandemic and the swine flu pandemic. Housing, interestingly, held up really well both during and after both of those pandemics, and home prices were stable during both of those. And if you look back at recessions really going all the way back to World War II, typically housing has helped lead the economy out of those recessions. And so you've seen both transaction volume and home prices improve from the beginning of the recession to the end of the recession. There's nothing really that we can compare what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic too, because of the economic hit that the country is taking. Uh, The closest proxy I could find was probably the terrorist attacks in 9-11, which shut down the economy for a little while. And the subsequent anthrax scares certainly didn't help consumer confidence and, 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 and shut down spending for a bit. But even there, September's always a weak month for home sales compared to August. There's always a seasonal drop off. So there was a little bit more of a seasonal drop-off and prices understandably dipped a little bit that month in October. But after that, we saw home prices go up on a month-over-month basis and a year-over-year basis for 14 straight months uh, and home sales increased as well. So what history tells me is that 
housing has performed better than the general economy and, and certainly better than, than volatile indexes like the stock market coming out of prior recessions, coming out of prior pandemics. So if you believe history teaches you anything about the future, that's a, a, a sign for at least some cautious optimism going forward. And that doesn't talk about current market conditions, but it, it does speak to the resiliency of housing through these kind of crises. That's very interesting. Now, you worked at auction.com, so you know a little bit about distressed inventory. Did you see the banks operating any differently throughout the last recession in terms of how they would release foreclosures? And what I'm getting at is, did they do more loan modifications or even get into the rental business themselves to sort of lessen the effect of the, the foreclosures? Yeah, that's a great question, Kathy. And I spent about a decade at Realty Track before that, so I had a front row seat on on all the foreclosure information that was out there. Truth of the matter is, there's very little similar about what we're seeing today compared to what we saw entering the Great Recession. And and one of the key factors to keep in mind is that the Great Recession is the exception to the rule when it comes to housing and performance. The housing meltdown is what started the Great Recession, and we had a very very different scenario. The market was egregiously overbuilt. So when the wheels came off the bus, there were more properties than there were people looking to buy them. That cratered prices, which created more pressure on homeowners. We had, I think at a peak, something like 30% of homeowners were underwater on their mortgages. And then we had that mountain of foreclosures. Six million people roughly uh, lost a home to foreclosure during that tidal wave. You contrast that to where we are today, and, and we're coming into a market where we're not overbuilt, we're underbuilt to the tune of probably three to 400,000 housing units a year. Demand is outstripping supply. Uh, home prices back then were ridiculously unaffordable. Today, uh, even with as high as home prices have risen, uh, when you factor in interest rates that are about three points lower and wage growth over the ensuing period, affordability is actually better. People have higher home buying power than they did back then. Record levels of equity, about $6.3 trillion in equity, which again was not the case last time. Um, so, so a lot of the variables that were in place last time don't exist this time. In fact, just the opposite exists. So housing was really strong going into the pandemic. None of this answers your question. I'll actually get to that. Um, <laughs> the banks have kind of been, their hand has kind of been forced this time by the federal government. So when the government announced a forbearance program, that would apply to all government-backed loans. So every loan that's either owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or that is insured by the FHA, VA, and USDA, uh, all a borrower really has to do is raise their hand and say, hey, my income has been affected by, by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and they qualify for a forbearance of up to 180 days. And there's an option at the end of that period for another 180 days. And the industry's kind of gotten on board with that. And so what we're seeing is a fundamental foundational difference in the approach. As anybody who's worked in the mortgage business can tell you, it's much, much easier to work with a borrower before they've defaulted on a loan than it is to try and fix a situation after they've defaulted. Because once they've defaulted, the clock starts to tick. There's contractual obligations a lender and servicer have to the, the note holders, and it gets much more complicated. So what these forbearance programs have really done is sort of moved the, the, the critical juncture out at least six months and maybe in some cases 12 months. And the hope is that by that point in time, most of the people who have had their income affected or have lost a job because of the shutdowns across the country, the shelter-in-place laws, will have had a chance to, to get back to work. 
uh, and will be in a much better financial position to be able to avoid a foreclosure uh, than, than what we saw the last time. The last time during the Great Recession, we got to about 10% unemployment, and that was a rock-solid 10% unemployment. These were jobs that were gone and were not coming back. The hope is that as ridiculous as the numbers are right now, when you look at first-time unemployment claims, and as of today, we're, I think, at about 30 million over the last five weeks um, or six weeks. The hope is that, that 85 to 90% of them are, are intended to be temporary layoffs, temporary furloughs, so that most of these people, the overwhelming majority, hopefully will have a job to go back to when the dust settles. And that, again, fundamentally is a very, very different situation to handle than what we had 10 years ago. And, and so I think the banks, uh, even the banks that are working with loans that are not government-backed, are putting forbearance programs in place and hopefully aren't making the same kind of dopey mistakes that, that were made last time. And, and the one I'll refer to, because I've heard some servicers actually talk about it this time, is at the end of the deferment period, in a typical forbearance program, a borrower is expected to make a balloon payment. Well, if you, you think about somebody who's just had four to six months of payments deferred, they've probably been out of work for four to six months and expecting them to miraculously come up with six months of payments all at once. Um, you may as well go hunting for unicorns. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, 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 what I've heard recently is guidelines coming out and saying, no balloon payments, you know, figure out another way of, of making that repayment program work. And so again, I've hoped that the industry is addressing the situation a lot more intelligently than we did last time. And it's starting from a much stronger base than what we were looking at the last time we entered a, a housing market problem. You know, some of the larger firms like Goldman Sachs is saying that Q3 is going to be a pretty big bounce back. Why do you think that is? Because the alternative is much too depressing to consider. So we're all <laughs> It's just hopeful thinking. No, it's not hopeful thinking. It goes back to what I was talking about before. Yeah, Goldman is, has issued reports forecasting as much as a 25% drop in, in GDP. Uh, we saw a 4.8% drop in the first quarter GDP. The second quarter, you know, let, let's all brace for impact because the second quarter, no matter which economic numbers you're looking at, it is going to be ugly. There was a, an unemployment report that came out, I think today, that talked about three and a half million people filing for first-time unemployment claims. And that felt good um, because it wasn't six million. Uh, and and 3.5 million in a vacuum would be a ridiculously bad number. The hope is that once the shelter-in-place orders start getting lifted, once non-essential businesses, quote-unquote, are allowed to reopen, we'll start to see people going back to work. We'll start to see consumer spending again. We'll start to see businesses investing again and getting their, their operations up and running. And there is going to be a lot of pent-up demand for a lot of things. If I could buy an ETF uh, on the amount of volume we're going to see in barbershops and beauty salons in the third quarter... I'd invest everything, and I think I'd be able to retire by November. So there is a lot of hope that once these shelter-in-place orders are lifted, we will see the economy restart. We will see a bounce back as people spend. Uh, it, uh, my personal belief is that Q3 will be a, a bounce-back quarter. Q4 will probably be, be stronger than Q3, uh, and that, that certain industry segments are just going to take longer to come back than others. I, I believe, for example, hospitality and tourism. I think are going to lag in their recovery compared to some of the other sectors, just because I think, A, we're going to miss the peak vacation season for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, and B, I think people are going to be reluctant to get on a plane anytime soon until there's a vaccine for the, the virus. 
So it'll be an uneven recovery. It'll be a little bit like uh, waking up in Green Bay in January and in you know minus forty degrees and hoping your car turns over the first time. <laughs> but but eventually, gradually, and I think very forcefully, the economy is poised to to come back. Well, especially since we have a president who would like to get reelected and is going to do everything in his power to do so, and that could include that next phase of stimulus, which is the infrastructure rebuilding of America, which could create more jobs. I mean, do you see that coming through in the next few months? I am a hopeless optimist when it comes to infrastructure programs. I've been counting on one, I think, since the Lincoln administration. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so I, I, I think we're going to see more stimulus even before we get to an infrastructure bill. I am cautiously optimistic that we will see a bipartisan bill supported that calls for massive spending on on infrastructure, and that would create jobs. What we found during the Obama administration, when there were public works funds set aside, is there aren't there just aren't a ton of what they call shovel ready projects, which which is mm-hmm. you know, the projects you can begin right away. So you can earmark the funds, but it, it does take a while to get them approved and, and started up and and have that funding work its way into the economy. I think the fact that the government has already poured about $2.5 trillion in stimulus into the economy and is talking about another $2 trillion uh, being, being earmarked to get going in, the fact that the Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to provide liquidity into the market uh, and keep the market the markets, I guess, up and running, uh, does give me great hope that, again, once people are allowed to leave their house and go back to work, you will start to see things move up. And in fact, one of the things I'm, I'm actually concerned about is we may have inflation for the first time in decades that, that we'll have to have the Fed figure out how to keep under control just because of the amount of money that's been printed uh, and poured into the system. But yeah, I, I do think both the president and all the people in Congress uh, who are running for re-election this fall will, will have motivated self-interest in doing everything they can to get the economy up and running as, as smoothly and as quickly as, as humanly possible. I think one of the lessons we learned is maybe we do need to be manufacturing more here in the U.S. Do you see any of that happening? Yeah. For for anybody that's looking at investments into commercial real estate, my money candidly is on the industrial sector for a couple of reasons. I think this shutdown, this pandemic has really accelerated what was already a growing amount of e-commerce business, um, moving away from brick and mortar retail into uh, into more and more e-commerce. And I think the, the volume of buying from home activity has uncovered stress points uh, in the the warehouse and distribution sector. Uh, I think we're probably going to see more decentralized officing uh, over time. Uh, I think CFOs across the country are probably scratching their heads and suddenly asking the question, why am I spending millions of dollars every year uh, on really, really expensive overhead when people can work from home or from less expensive offices uh, in less expensive geographies? So I, I, I think you'll see more investment in cloud computing facilities. So warehousing distribution, cloud computing facilities, and, and I think the third aspect of, of the industrial sector that will benefit from this pandemic uh, is manufacturing, and specifically pharmaceutical manufacturing and, and flex manufacturing. Uh, we have found how difficult it is to get typical manufacturing facilities to suddenly shift gears and, and stop making cars, for example and start making ventilators or stop making tapestries and start to make masks. And I think from a national security standpoint, uh, suddenly people have awakened to the fact that perhaps uh, having all of your antibiotics manufactured by China 
may not be the smartest move in the world uh, when, when you're dealing with a world that's susceptible to these kind of pandemics. So I, I would not be surprised to see a government initiative that calls for more onshore manufacturing, particularly in industries that we could make a legitimate argument are important for national security. So I, I, I do think you're going to see uh, you're going to see some movement along those lines. Which again elevates the need for a home. If, people, if more people are going to have to work at home, or you know, they they probably want a nice home and maybe one that has a, an office for them, not the kitchen table. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I uh, uh, you and I were talking about this earlier. I, I opened my own consulting practice a little over a year ago. Really didn't know I was going to be doing it on an ongoing basis, and so I, I didn't really take advantage of of parts of the home that I, I could turn into a, a home office. Once the shelter-in-place orders hit and I wasn't going out and meeting with people on a regular basis and I couldn't use my remote office, which is otherwise known as Starbucks, <laughs> uh, I turned what was our guest room into, a, into an office, a home office. And I do think this work-from-home environment has long-term implications, I think, on the, on the, the, uh, the single-family home side of the fence. Uh, people might start looking for that three-bedroom house instead of a two-bedroom house or a four-bedroom house instead of a three-bedroom house uh, so that they can work from home. They can work remotely uh, either all the time or at least some of the time. I think in the multifamily market, one of the things you might see apartment buildings start to do is is offer more remote officing space for their tenants and offer that up as an amenity, again, because people are are going to have the option or or maybe not the option to mandate of not uh, coming into a centralized location, but working working remotely. So I, I think you will see some fundamental changes there. The other thing uh, I've been talking to people about, and this is kind of bad news for current owners, but could be good news for investors looking for the next opportunity, is I suspect that we're going to find an awful lot of over-leveraged Airbnb owners uh, over the next three to six months, mm-hmm. six to nine months. You know, if if you were renting out a couple of rooms in your house to help pay your mortgage, that's one thing you can probably paper that over at least for a while. If you've bought 10, 12 different buildings, uh, homes, whatever, that, that you're renting out, but you, you're leveraged 90%, that's going to be a problem because a lot of those rooms, a lot of those buildings are empty right now. And I'm not sure how many of those kind of owners are going to be able to make it through this downturn. And again, partly because my suspicion is travel and tourism is going to be one of the last markets to recover. And at that point, even when you do start traveling again, are you going to have more faith in Marriott Corporation or Hyatt to keep their facilities relatively clean and germ-free or somebody you've never heard of before in in an individual home? So I I think for investors looking for short-term opportunities, I I think, you know, one one person's misfortune is another opportunity. uh, I'd be looking at that Airbnb segment pretty closely right now. Well, and there was a lot of complaining beforehand that uh, Airbnbs were taking up much needed inventory for homeowners. So it may be an opportunity for people to finally be able to acquire their own home. Yes, absolutely. I, I think from a home ownership standpoint, from a, uh, a single family rental standpoint, uh, or for what really kind of amounts to an investment fix and flip opportunity, because in some of those cases, if you want to make the property available for a homeowner, you're going to have to modify it a bit from how it was converted to become an Airbnb. But yeah, I think opportunities uh, in, in that category are going to present themselves in the, in the near future. What do you think? Do you, do you think we'll see a similar shift with student housing? I, I'm curious how many parents are thinking, wow, 
maybe maybe I didn't need to spend so much money on education for my kid. They could just study right here at home. I mean, do you, do you think we'll see a change there? Not from a distance learning perspective, at least not right away. Honestly, I, I have a, a college senior who's home now. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a high school senior who's home now. And from decent school districts and you know a pretty good college, and the degree to which educational institutions appear to be struggling with distance learning is just mind-numbing. Uh, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not going to mention the school district, the, the K-12 to school district where I live, but they just sent out a very self-congratulatory email from the superintendent talking about how they now think they have this distance learning thing figured out, uh, and they're going to start rolling out the program you know, in, in a more meaningful way over the next few weeks. Well, if, if you look at the calendar, over the next few weeks takes you basically to the end of the school year, which was supposed to be over on June 4th. They've been out of, of their buildings for over a month. The distance learning application, the way they've, they, they've executed it, has been spotty at best. I'm trying to be generous. I, I don't think the educational institutions are either ready, the traditional ones are either ready or really motivated to provide that kind of distance learning option for their students. Uh, I also think if you, if you really break down uh, cost of education, the universities and colleges in many cases make an awful, awful lot of profit on dormitories, uh, mm-hmm. on what they charge for room and board. So again, I, th- I think from an alignment of interests standpoint, a lot of these places want as many people on campus as they can get because they make a lot of money doing that. I do think a lot of parents are going to start asking a question about how smart is it in an environment where we may see another wave of this pandemic to have three kids who, you know, let's, let's face it, college students, hygiene habits probably aren't, you know, exactly what you'd get in a, a class three uh, uh, Silicon Valley lab. Um, and, and is it going to be smart to have three of those kids living in a dorm room together uh, or two living in a dorm room together or four living in a small apartment on campus? So I, I, I wonder if we might not see some fundamental changes in student housing just to provide more social distancing, to provide more uh, hygienic conditions so that if you do have an infection hit, it, it doesn't spread like wildfire. I think the, I think the other opportunity, uh, candidly, Kathy, is in the area of senior housing. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the hardest hit places have been nursing homes. Yeah. Uh, and, and with an aging population, uh, with, with the boomer generation uh, not getting any younger and and going to be looking for alternative ways to to spend their golden years. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of shifts in the the the, the types of senior living facilities that are available. One of my running jokes is that you know the boomer generation kind of grew up in malls, and and I'm at the tail end of that generation. And if I heard my mom say it once, I heard it a hundred times. It was, you know, you spend so much time at the mall, why don't you just go live there? Well, maybe in retirement we can. Uh, and <laughs> And we repurpose some of these suburban malls to mixed-use facilities that don't just have retail, but have retail, eating, entertainment, healthcare, and 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 even occupancy. So I, I do think coming out of this, there's going to be a lot of industry segments in real estate that rethink what's been done traditionally and and create new opportunities coming out. Good stuff. All right. Well, it's been an honor to get you on The Real Wealth Show again, and so glad to hear that you do consulting. I would love to hear more about it. Essentially, I'm, I'm working with real estate, financial services, slash mortgage, and technology companies that provide services to those two market segments. Uh, and, and I help with everything from 
business strategy and business models to business development, marketing, media strategies, and support. So it's it's a it's a a, a kind of a wide range of services supporting those those kind of companies. My current client base ranges from a Fortune 500 company to a sole proprietorship, uh, a, a woman-owned business uh, in Florida that that works in the default servicing industry. So. I'm all over the place, um, but, but I enjoy that, and it gives me a chance to uh, continue to put out materials about what's going on in the real estate and mortgage space, which I enjoy doing. And, and uh, for any of your listeners um, who are interested in this kind of information, I post pretty regularly on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, uh, and my, my Twitter handle is really hard to figure out. It's Rick Sharga, um, <laughs> and uh, I welcome anybody who's uh, interested in this kind of information to reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn or, or follow me on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming back on The Real Wealth Show. It's been a Thanks pleasure. for having me, Kathy. Let's do it again soon. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you'd like to see which metros we think will rebound the quickest, visit us at realwealthshow.com. There you'll find a list of detailed market data along with a list of rental property providers in those markets and property management companies that are highly rated by our more than 50,000 members. So check it out at realwealthshow.com and it's free to join. Have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.